All right, hey, as you grab a seat, I'll first acknowledge uh, the obvious. Maybe for some of you, you're just kind of wired differently than I am. Um, is anyone else really hot in here right now? Yeah, it is. Like, it is so hot that I had to bring up, like, the sweat rag. So if I'm doing this tonight, it just means it's real preaching. Um, but we're, we'll work on this with our facilities teams. One of the best problems to have as a church is, like, there's too many people in the room and it's getting hot. But that's an awesome thing to have. Uh, so we will work on that. It's an awesome thing. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament as we continue as we continue teaching through this series on dating and relationships and sex and marriage um, and romance and all the different things um, that, that exist in that space. Now, we've been working through this series, and, and as it turns out, God actually has a lot to say in his word uh, about how we think about romance and dating and life and marriage and children and sex and everything else. And last week, if you were here, we talked about who you date. We really talked about kind of how to think about the right person and how you end up with that person and step into a dating relationship. So this week, we want to kind of take it to the next step and go from who you date really to the question of how we date. And specifically tonight, I want to try to answer the question, how we specifically as Christians, how is that a unique thing for us? How do we date as followers of Jesus? Now, I don't assume everyone in the room here is a Christian tonight. I don't assume everyone listening online is a Christian tonight. Uh, and yet, for those of you who do call yourselves followers of Jesus, uh, I believe the passage we're going to look at tonight gives us a clear vision uh, of what it means for us to be in a dating relationship as Christians. Now, now here's what I've learned. Uh, I've learned that most people don't think that being a Christian and in a dating relationship is supposed to be that hard. Meaning, they think, I love Jesus and she loves Jesus, and we like each other, so why is this so difficult? But here's what I want to tell you tonight, that dating is not something that comes naturally, that loving people, even in a romantic sphere, does not come naturally. It is a skill that has to be learned. See, we tend to think it's just something that bubbles up within us, but I actually think it's a lot more like typing. Now, now some of you learn to type actually on a phone, but others of you, like me, learn to type on a keyboard. And I remember learning to type, and remember what you did at first? You did the hunt and peck thing, right? You're like... One sentence, right? And then you move on to the next, right? And it was slow and it was frustrating and there were a lot of errors. But then over time, you, you transitioned into this space where you weren't even looking at the keyboard. And some of you are now listening to something on your headphones, watching a screen over there, typing, and you've got it, right? It's a skill you develop over time. And here's what I'm convinced of, that dating, and specifically Christian dating, is not something that comes naturally to anyone. It is a skill that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we develop over time. And tonight, tonight I want to show you what that skill of dating in a Christian context looks like. And I want to speak to you, uh, whether you are in this room and you are dating someone, you're engaged to someone, or you are married to someone. So if you are in a relationship, or, or I want to speak to you if you're single. Let, let me speak to the two types of group in this room. Um, if you are in a relationship, I want this passage to be your playbook. I want it to be your playbook. I want it to be the thing that you go back to with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend and say, this is how we're supposed to live. Because I'm going to make this statement, and this is bold, but I believe this is true. If you live out what this passage calls you to live out, your relationship will be fruitful. I'm not saying you will get married. I'm saying it will be fruitful. It will be beautiful. It will be good. This is a passage that can serve as a playbook for how you treat one another in the relationship. 
And so again, if you're in a relationship, let this be your playbook. And if you are not in a relationship, if you are single and ready to mingle, let me hear it from my single people. Yeah, oh, okay, wow, quite a few of you. Um, but, but listen, if you are not in a relationship, shh, let this passage be your presupposition. And what do I mean by that? I'm about to preach through what a Christian relationship looks like, and I do not want you to get into a relationship with anyone no matter how cute they are or interesting they are or rich they are or famous they are or anything they are, I do not want you to be in a relationship with anyone who would not be able to live out this passage with you. This should be your presupposition. So again, we're gonna jump in. Colossians chapter three, verse one. If you have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen as well. Here's what it says. It says, since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So I want you to notice how this passage begins for us tonight. It begins with an assumption. And that assumption is since then you have been raised with Christ. And here's why it's important for us to notice this right from the outset. This is not a passage of scripture that is written to everyone who has ever lived. It is not a passage of scripture written to everyone in the world. And I'll say this tonight. This is not a passage of scripture written to everyone in this room. This is a passage of scripture specifically written to one group, and that is the group of people who have been raised with Christ. In other words, let me put it in language we can all understand. This is a passage of scripture written to Christians. It's written to Christians. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a command for you that you're about to see here. These aren't suggestions. These aren't like pro tips. These aren't my best ideas on how to date well. This is the command of a holy God of how you treat one another. And yet if you are not a Christian, like if you're just checking this out or maybe you haven't been to church in a while or you're not even sure you believe in Jesus, here's what I wanted you to know. Two things. Number one, you're off the hook tonight. Like this is not a list of commands that you have to do in order to get your way to God. This is a list of commands given to Christians who have already believed that Jesus is in charge and he's king. But if you are not a Christian, here's what I want you to know. You, you may walk under the assumption that Christian faith is basically a list of commands, a list of things you have to do. And if you obey all the rules, then God will love you. And if you think that, here's what I need you to hear tonight. You are wrong. You're wrong. That is not what Christian faith is. Right at the center of Christian faith is the idea that before you obey, before you follow any of the rules, before you've done anything good for God, God has done everything good for you. Like the good news of the gospel is that God sees you before you obey, before you love him, before you follow the rules and says, I want that woman in my family. I want that man in my family. And I would do anything for them to be in my family. I would send my son Jesus to die on the cross that they would come into the family of God. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. That we are part of the family of God, that we are brought into the covenant with God. That God loves us so much that he raises us from death into the newness of life. And so here's the invitation for you. If you are not a Christian, I want you to know before you hear anything else tonight that there's a God who loves you, a God who sees you, a God who created you, and a God who wants to forgive you of all of your sins. He wants to raise you from death into life that you might be part of the family of God. If that's you tonight, whatever else you hear, I want you to know that there's a God who loves you. And he speaks to us in this way. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Then what does he say? Set your hearts on things that are above. What is your heart? It's your desire. It's what you crave. It's what you just want in the deepest parts of your being. It's this where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then it says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so this first command, again, given to Christians, is that your heart's desire, your heart's passion, your mind's attention would be drawn toward God, not toward earthly things. 
And this is one of these foundational principles for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, one of the greatest things that will derail your discipleship to Jesus is setting your eyes on earthly things rather than the things that are above. It will derail you as a Christian. It will distract you as a Christian. It will harm you as a Christian. If your heart and your mind are set on the things of this earth rather than on God himself, because when you set your eyes on the things of this earth, what you ultimately end up doing is you end up taking something good in this world, something like money or physical health or your career or your education or your friendships or, or anything like that or approval of other people. You take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. And here's what you need to know, that if you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. If you make a good thing in your life, an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Listen, money is a good thing. But if you make money the ultimate thing in your life, it will devour and destroy you. It will never be a blessing to you. It becomes a bad thing. Physical health is a good thing. But if you make your physique and how you look and how you show up on camera and how you look with a shirt off at the beach, if you make that the ultimate thing for you, it will become a bad, toxic, unhealthy thing in your life. And here's what I want you to know when it comes to relationships, that when you make the relationship the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. If you are dating someone right now, and you make that someone and your relationship with that someone the ultimate thing in your life, the most important, the top thing that gets your heart's attention, your mind's attention, if that is the ultimate thing in your life, it will very quickly become a bad, destructive thing. And here's why I know you know this is true. Everyone in this room has known someone who got into a relationship with someone else and suddenly they stopped speaking to anyone, talking to anyone else. They stayed up too late. They didn't sleep. Their entire life was wrapped around this relationship and it took them down a spiral. It's never healthy. It's never good. For you to put your boyfriend or girlfriend in the ultimate place of your life is bad for you. But then hear me on this. It's also bad for them. Do you know why? Ladies, if you make your boyfriend the ultimate thing in your life, your expectations and desires for him will crush him. He cannot sustain the weight of the thing that only God should be in your life. If you put your boyfriend in the place of God in your life and say you are the ultimate thing, you will destroy him. You will crush him with your expectations because you will expect him to be the sinless, perfect one who provides for all your needs. And only God does that, ladies. Or gentlemen, if you make your girlfriend the ultimate thing in your life, that she's gonna fulfill all of your desires, that she's gonna give you purpose, that she's gonna give you hope, that she's gonna give you a future, that she is everything to you, you will crush her with those expectations because she can never live up to that because she is not God. I think the very beginning of a conversation about a Christian relationship, a Christ-centered relationship, is you understanding the right place to put your boyfriend or girlfriend in. I'm a man who's been married 10 years, and you know one of the best gifts I will ever give to my wife? It is the fact that I love God more than her. It's that I love God more than her. And that's not unromantic. That's not a bummer. That's the best thing ever. Because when I love God more than her, I find my satisfaction in God, and I don't expect her to step into the place of God in my life and vice versa. My wife loves God more than me, and that is a good thing. It is a blessing in my life. And we get that ordered right, and we start on the right footing. He goes on this way in verse three. It says, for you died, which is an interesting sentence. You died. Like I need you to know if you're a Christian, the thing isn't like your life just got marginally better. The idea is you are dead. You are gone. You are a new creation. Something new has been born in your place. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
And so again, here's the, the gospel truth. The gospel truth isn't that come to Jesus and he'll make you a better person. No, no, it's come to Jesus. He'll make you a new person. He'll completely give you a new life and a new identity. And then what does it say here? It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you're going to appear with him in glory, like you have a glorious future. But notice what it says about Christ. It says Christ, who is not part of your life. It's not a nice addition to your life. It's Christ who is your life. And yet what happens to far too many Christians and far too many Christian couples is that Christ isn't their life. It's like a nice addition. It's like this. So I love drinking coffee. I drink entirely too much. Um, and maybe you can tell that from my personality. Um, but, but I do too much. And, and probably 99 times out of 100, um, when I drink my coffee, I drink it black. But then like one time out of 100, I'm like, let's see what all the buzz is about. And I add a little bit, like a splash of cream to my coffee. I stir it in and it is delightful, okay? And that's what I do. I have like a splash of cream in my coffee. It's nice. But here's what I worry about for many people who call themselves Christians. I worry that for many of you, it's like your life with a splash of Jesus. And I worry for so many Christian relationships. It's two believers walking together in a relationship and it's romance with a splash of Jesus. My question is this, is your relationship romance with a splash of Jesus? Is it that, yeah, you're both Christians and you come to church and when you're out in public, you make sure to pray before a meal in case someone else busts you and catch you. Like, like you kind of do that and you sort of have a vague Christian flavor to your relationship. Or are you able to look at your relationship? Well, like you saw in that video before, that I can build the kingdom of God with this person. Like I love Jesus more because I love this person. We talk together, we pray together, we go to church together, we worship together, we confess our sins to one another. We are becoming more like Jesus together. See, there's a difference between romance with the splash of Jesus and what Paul is talking about here when he says, Christ, who is your life. It goes on this way in verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of such things of these anger, rage, slander, malice, and filthy language from your lips. So, so Paul is going to say, Christ is your life. Everything's about Jesus. You order your life properly. But then the very next words he's going to say is a warning to us. And that warning is simply this. You'll see it here, that we need to put to death some things that are inside of us, which is an interesting assumption Paul makes. Do you know that Paul assumes you're going to like carry sin and baggage into every relationship you've ever been in? Like he assumes you're going to have sin. He assumes you're going to have issues. He assumes there are going to be things going on in your life. He says, put that all to death. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming. And that just sounds like God's up in heaven, like that's a bad thing. And I'm just going to like send a lightning bolt. But that's not what's being implied here. It's like the wrath of God is coming because these are the types of things that ultimately destroy human relationships. And here's what I need you to know that every single thing listed on this screen, if you do not deal with it in your life, will one day wound the person you love the most. Like ladies, if you get married to this guy someday and you don't deal with these things, it will wound him deeply. You will cause pain in his life. You will cause havoc upon him and possibly your children and your children's children. I want you to understand, gentlemen, if you do not deal with the issues going on up here, it will cause pain in your family and pain in your future. See, what Paul assumes is that there are these things in our life that we need to put to death. And I love that language. Like, I need to be clear tonight. Paul does not want you to make peace with your sin. He wants you to make war with it. He, he wants you to go after it. He doesn't want you to be like, well, I'm angry and I've always been angry and my father was angry and his father before him. So I'm just always going to be an angry person. And if I marry someone, they're just going to have to deal with that. 
That is not following Jesus. Following Jesus says, put your anger to death. Like the scriptures are gonna tell us, uh, well, I'm greedy and I've always loved to have nice stuff and my mom liked to have nice stuff and it was just kind of part of our story. No, that is not following Jesus. Put that to death. Uh, I think about it this way. So a couple years back, there was this major windstorm um, in Thousand Oaks uh, and my house uh, was just, my house was fine. It wasn't like the three little pigs were like huff and puff and it blew down or anything like that. Um, but, but what did not do so well is these lights we have in the backyard on these little fence posts. And so somehow these lights like caught wind and I came out one morning and the lights, all the glass was like shattered all over the grass in my backyard. And so I come back there and I'm like, oh no, homeowner's insurance claim coming, right? And I'm like so concerned about this. And then I look down into the grass and I see just glass shattered everywhere, which like wouldn't be a problem if I didn't have three small humans running around called children. Um, and they run around barefoot in the backyard. And so I'm looking down at this glass and I go, no, no, I got to deal with this. And so what do I do? I kneel down onto the grass and I start picking up the big shards and if you've ever had something break, especially glass, you'll know that there are a few big shards. And those are the easy ones to pick up, right? You're like, okay, here's a big one, here's a big one, here's a big one, that would cut my pinky off, right? And you do this and you throw it away. And I think for some of you, there are big shards in your life. There are big issues in your life that you know about. There are things you know you need to deal with. There are sexual sins you have been dealing with for years. There are anger issues that have been going on since you were a kid. There are pride issues. There are lust issues. There's foul words that come out of your mouth. There are big issues that you know are problems. And here's what I need you to know. If you want to be in a healthy relationship, you need to deal with your sin before you even think about dealing with the sin of the person you're dating. So some of you know those big issues. But then I also want you to know that I'm starting to go through and I pick up those big shards of glass, but then here's what I very quickly see that it's not just that there's big old hunks of shards of glass, there's also tiny little ones. And it'd be super easy for me to be like, well, I got the big ones, I'm sure the rest will work itself out, right? But that's not how my children's feet would feel if they ran across it. See, what I knew is the people I loved the most would actually be hurt unless I got into the dirt and started picking up tiny little shards, getting my hands dirty and spending hours out there picking up tiny little shards of glass. And here's what I know. Some of you have big major issues that you know are issues and you gotta deal with those. But some of you have these little tiny shards of issues and you don't think it's a big deal because no one else notices and you think you hide it well. But here's what I need you to know. If you get into a relationship and get close with someone, all of those tiny little issues will cause scars on the other person unless you deal with it. Unless you deal with it. And so I'm here tonight to plead with you to deal with the sin issues in your life, to deal with these issues that Paul says that we're not supposed to make peace with them, we're supposed to put them to death. Can I bring up four for you? It says lust. I wanna be clear to you. Lust is a major issue in every generation. It's not new. It's not new with the invention of the internet. It's not something that just appeared on the human scene. Lust, sexual sin, all of that, it is an issue that has been around since the dawn of time. Uh, and yet I also want to recognize that in this generation, it is a major issue even for those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And you have two choices. You can let lust, sexual sin, pornography, and everything else own you, or you can go to war with it and put it to death. That's what Paul tells us. And I just want to plead with you not to be foolish enough to think that you struggle with lust or you struggle with pornography, but if you get married and can have sex someday, it'll all go away. That's a lie. 
It is a lie, and too many marriages are destroyed by a person who comes into the marriage thinking marriage will fix everything, and then they just drag that sin into a covenant marriage. Put that to death. If you're single right now, use the time while you're single to put your sexual sin to death. Put it to death. Deal with it. Fight against it. War against it. If you have no idea what that means, come talk to us. We want to help you. We want to send you in the right direction, not because we're filled with condemnation for you. Are you kidding me? Like sexual sin is something that is tempting to all of us. It's tempting to me. It's tempting to every leader here. We don't want to shame anyone. We want you to live under a cloud of shame and guilt and hiddenness. We want you to bring it into the light so that you can experience freedom. What do we want for you? We want you to put it to death for your sake, for the sake of your relationship with God, for the sake of the person you're going to date. It talks about lust and then evil desires. And then it talks about greed. It talks about your desire for money. And greed is one of those things that it's easy to kind of ignore. In fact, of all the sins people tend to confess to me, I still just really have not had people come up to me like, I'm just so greedy. Because greed is something none of us think we struggle with. And yet what you can really quickly realize is that you have actually grown accustomed to a certain standard of living and level of wealth and access to resources. And if you are not careful, you will bring those expectations into your relationship with the other and then resent them if they do not provide for you the same level of resources you're used to. You need to be careful to deal with the greed in your heart. You need to go through a season where you recognize what are the wants in your life and what are the needs in your life and what are the things you just assume that every human being should have and yet you realize that that's not actually promised to you in this life. Paul says if you don't put together this greed, it's going to cause problems in your life. Talk about lust, talk about greed. We talk about anger and rage, it says there at the bottom. Anger and rage. And here's what I've learned in a room like this. Most of your anger and rage comes from your reaction to the home you grew up in. And for far too many of us, we have childhood wounds, childhood issues, sincere problems, things that went on when you were a kid, and the temptation is to think, I'm an adult, I don't have to think about it, I won't deal with it, I'll move on from it, I'll just suck it up and move on with my life, and I want to plead with you to deal with those issues, to deal with those issues now, if you have anger or resentment toward your father, if you have bitterness or rage toward your mother, if you are angry about the divorce, if you're angry about the abuse, if you're angry about the thing that happened to you as a child, that might be completely justified anger. But if you do not process and work through that with a pastor or a trusted friend or with a counselor, if you do not work through those tiny little shards, it will end up wounding you and wounding the person you love. Listen, especially if you're dating, especially if you're single, now is the time to deal with those issues before they start playing out over and over and over again in the future. And then the final one I want you to look at, it talks about rage and malice and slander. Uh, and, and it talks about slander. Slander is when I just speak foul and disgusting things about people. It's when I say things that aren't true, that aren't kind, that aren't gracious about other people. And I need you to be careful because if you step into a relationship with someone else and you think it's okay to just use whatever words you want to use about anyone else, you will ultimately see those words wound the person you love the most. Again, what is Paul's burden here? Paul's burden is that there are sins in your life. And if those sins are not put to death, it will harm you. It will harm your relationship with God and it will harm the people you love most. And if you want to step into a relationship that is thriving and healthy and God honoring, do not make peace with your sin. Choose this day to make war with it. Put it to death, as the scriptures say. Verse nine goes on this way. It says, do not lie to one another since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but in Christ is all and in all. Now let's just see here in verse nine what the command is. And it's gonna be given with all of these kind of qualifiers. We're not to lie to each other since we've taken off the old self, right? We've put on the new self. We're being made into the image of the creator. There's not a bunch of divisions amongst us, but we're all one. And all of that serves as a basis, as an argument for this one thing, do not lie to one another. And why do we not lie to one another? Why in relationships do we not lie to one another? Why do you not lie to your boyfriend, lie to your girlfriend? Because of the simple truth that's gonna be true in every relationship of your life. Because lies break relationships. Lies break relationships. You need to understand that the moment you introduce falsehood and deception and lies and half-truths into any relationship, it breaks the relationship. Now, here's what I think. I think most of you are on board with this when it comes to the big things. Like you should not lie to your partner about you not cheating on them and you should not have this shadow life. You shouldn't lie about big things, about money, about future, about past. You you think I shouldn't just outright lie to my partner. And that's true. If you have big lies and big things that you are hiding from your partner, it breaks the relationship even if you're technically still dating one another. But here's what I want you to know. The lies that actually end up subtly destroying and dissolving a relationship like acid are not the big ones, they are the little ones we tell each other over and over and over and over again. Let me give you three. Here's the first one. Saying I'm okay or I'm good when you're not good. Saying I'm good when I'm not good. And if you've ever been in a relationship, you know how this goes. Someone's kind of off and a person makes a face and you look at them and you're like, are you good? Are you mad at me? Are we good? Are mama said? And you're kind of looking at them and you're trying to figure this out. And then here is one of the lies you can tell that will break relationship. No, I'm totally good. And they're like, are you sure? You're like, I am 100% good. In fact, I have never been better in my entire life, right? And you say that, why? Because you're trying to avoid a conflict, because you're busy with other things, because you're on your phone and you just don't wanna deal with it. Like there's a million reasons we tell that little lie, but here's what I need you to know. If you look into the eyes of the person you love and tell them I'm good when you're not good, at that point, they can no longer take you at your word. And when you cannot take someone you love at their word, it breaks the relationship. Am I saying that in every single moment you're not good, you should just like stop the entire show and like announce your displeasure with your other person? No, but I am saying that you need to be in a relationship and have the courage to say, actually, I'm not good. What you said wounded me. What you failed to say wounded me. When you did that, when you didn't do that, that hurt me. Even if you feel petty, even if you feel small, even if you fear conflict, even if you'd rather just pretend everything's okay, saying you're good when you're not good breaks the relationship. Why? Because lies break the relationship. Here's number two. Number two is saying, I'm comfortable with this when you are not, in fact, comfortable with this. Like, ladies, let me speak to you. If you are ever in a moment and a guy is doing something with you physically and you are not comfortable with it, saying, oh, I'm fine with this. It's no big deal. It's no big issue. Just it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's no big deal. And you're not comfortable with it. That breaks the relationship. It violates your sanctity. It violates your your, your integrity. It, It violates you. Like in every way, I wanna speak to men in this room and say, do not push past boundaries you have no business pushing past. Do not step into that. Do not go there. And yet, ladies, I also wanna say to you that you have the ability to say, I'm not comfortable with that. That is not somewhere I wanna go. That's not somewhere I want you to lead me. I don't want you to say I'm comfortable with this when you're not comfortable with this. That goes for physical boundaries. That goes for men. That goes for women. Listen, that goes for how we talk to one another. 
Sometimes in relationships, you have like your own kind of humor that kind of works within the relationship, but sometimes that humor actually becomes biting and harsh. And so even for my wife and I, there have been seasons where we're kind of like joking in a certain kind of way. And eventually we kind of realize, actually, it's just kind of mean and sarcastic and harsh and dismissive of one another. And I'm not comfortable with that anymore. When there's a certain kind of humor, a certain kind of way you talk, a certain kind of way you operate, when you say I'm comfortable with this and you're not, you end up breaking the relationship. What do we need to do? We need to have the integrity to say, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to speak that way anymore. I don't want to do that. You need to learn to speak the truth to the person you love. The most loving thing you can do is to speak the truth and let the consequences fall where they will. Here's the final thing I'll give you. Here's a lie that breaks relationships saying, I forgive you when you have not actually forgiven. One of the most destructive things for relationships is when you go through a season of pain and one or the other claims that you have forgiven, but you have not actually forgiven and you are holding on to bitterness and resentment and a desire for revenge, and yet you have said you've forgiven, but you haven't actually gone through that process. It breaks the relationship because now that person, again, can no longer take you at your word. What do we want to do? The scriptures say we're not going to lie to each other. And what does that mean? It means we're going to be a people who speak the truth. If you want to have a Christian relationship, a God-honoring, Christ-centered relationship, you must be a person who is willing to speak the truth and let the consequences fall where they will. Verse 12 goes on this way. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, I love this sentence. I love this sentence in scripture because it describes how God sees us. Like, I want to remind you tonight how the God of the universe sees you. If you have been raised with Christ, if you know Jesus, I want you to know that the God of the universe looks at you and doesn't see you as a sinful, disgusting mess. And some of you have come into this place believing that God looks at you and goes, I'm sick of her, I'm tired of him, he's lousy, she's faithless, he's no good. But here's what I want you to know. When the God of the universe thinks of you, he goes, oh, her? She is chosen. She is holy. She is dearly loved. Oh, him? Oh, he is chosen. He is holy. He is dearly loved. What does chosen, holy, dearly loved mean? It means three things. Chosen, it means God picked you. Well, like remember on, as a kid, you're picking up teams like on the sandlot, in the, in the recess game, whatever that thing is you're playing and you're like, you're hoping you get picked and then you're like, oh, I'm not being picked. I wonder if I'm gonna be picked. You know what the God of the universe said? He said, I want you in my family. I want you in my family. It's not that God was like, anyone who wants to can come. It's that God said, no, 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 you, come with me. You, come with me. You, come with me. That's what God did. God didn't just okay let you in. God chose you. It says you're holy. I want you to understand that. That means God sees you exactly as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at his son, Jesus Christ, and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the God of the universe looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in you I am well pleased. But what about my sin? What about my shame? What about my past? What about what I did? God says, I know all of that. I see you as I see my son, Jesus. And then he says, you are dearly loved. You know what this means? It means God is quite fond of you. God doesn't just like love you in a theoretical way. He actually likes you. He likes when you talk to him. He likes when you sing to him. He likes when you think about him. He likes when you talk to him. He likes when you're around him. God is actually quite fond of you. And what does this mean for our relationship? If we are chosen and holy and dearly loved, it means in the context of our relationship, we need to remind one another of the gospel as often as you can. You need to remind one another of gospel truths about one another because life is hard and you feel like a failure and you feel like you've let everyone down and your job, boyfriend and girlfriend, is to look at the other person and remind them that they are chosen, remind them that they are holy, remind them that they are dearly loved. So like when your boyfriend fails a test, 
when your boyfriend doesn't get the promotion at work, ladies, for you to look at him and say, remind, remember, remember, I know you feel like a failure, but the God of the universe says you're chosen, you're holy, you're dearly loved. G gentlemen, when your girlfriend doesn't end up getting that thing she was striving for, doesn't end up launching that new thing, doesn't end up getting that thing she was going after, when there's problems in her life or problems in her family or problems in her career for you to look at her and say that you are chosen, you are holy, you are dearly loved. To remind one another of the gospel is one of the fundamental tasks that God has put us to do, to remind one another how much God actually loves us. And then let me just say this for those of you who are dating in the room and you have crossed physical boundaries that you promised you would never cross, do you know one of the worst ways for you to react is with shame and anger and guilt? Like one of the worst things for you to be is like, oh, we're the worst and you're the worst and I'm the worst and I'm a sinner and I'm awful. You know what all that does? It just pushes you deeper down the dark hole of shame. You know what the gospel does? It liberates us from that. You know what you need to remind each other next time you cross a boundary you promised you wouldn't cross? Don't remind each other of how sinful you are. Remind each other that God looks at you and says, holy, chosen, dearly loved. You are holy, chosen, and dearly loved. We remind each other of the gospel. The gospel is something we're constantly bringing up to one another. It goes on this way. It says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I say this all the time when this kind of language comes up, this clothe yourself language. I think it's the perfect language in the New Testament. Why? Because today I put on this shirt and tomorrow morning, you know what I'm gonna have to do? I'm gonna have to put on a new shirt. And the next morning I'm gonna have to put on a new shirt. And every day that I am alive for the rest of my life before I die to go be with Jesus, I don't know what the shirt situation is in heaven, but until that day, I'm gonna have to put on a new shirt. And that's what I love about this clothe yourself language because it assumes that actually following Jesus is this daily, every morning you wake up kind of thing. And when it comes to your relationship, it's not like at one point you decide, I'll be patient with her, I'll be humble toward him, I'll be gentle with her. It's not like at one point you decide that. This is an everyday thing. When you choose to be in relationship with someone, you choose to put on these virtues. And why do we need to put on these virtues? We need to put on these virtues because the person you are dating, this is so important. I said this a few weeks ago. The person you are dating is like you, but they are not exactly like you. They are like you in that they are a human being created in God's image. And yet, gentlemen, the woman you are dating is not just like you. And ladies, the guy you are dating is not just like you. And ladies, if you assume that gentlemen should act and behave just like women should, you will be frustrated and angry and guys, vice versa. If you assume the other person should act and think exactly like you do, you have missed the beautiful design how God has created us, male and female. Instead, what do we need to do? We need to have compassion. Gentlemen, would you have compassion on ladies? There are unique pressures and things that they face in this world. There are unique dynamics to their life and to their body and to their existence and to everything about that that are just difficult. And that doesn't mean you have pity on them. It just means you have compassion. That sometimes it's hard to be a woman in this world. Sometimes it's difficult to deal with the pressures and the standards and everything that's said to them. Gentlemen, would you have compassion on the girl you're dating? It says to have kindness. Ladies, would you be kind to your boyfriend? Like he lives in a world where people are harsh, where people are mean. Even his best friends, like he gets around them. And you know how guys like compliment one another? They're like, you're the worst. And they just like insult each other. Like that's how guys bond. And so everywhere he goes, people are mean. And so ladies, just one of the most beautiful things you can do to your guy is like say a kind word to him. He'd be like, that's amazing, right? That's what you can do. You show kindness. Gentlemen, show humility toward your girlfriend. 
Humility says you don't have it all together. You're not the best. Gentlemen, guys, we tend to have this thing where we're like, I don't need any help. I don't need the instruction manual. I don't need anything in this world. I've got this all by myself. But what does humility look like? It means listening to your girlfriend. It means allowing her to speak into your life. You clothe yourself with humility. Uh, Again, ladies, gentleness. A gentleness toward your guy where you're not biting and harsh toward him when he makes a mistake or drops the ball, but you're gentle with him. And for all of us to have patience with one another, to have patience with the person we're in a relationship with, to be a type of person who says, I'm gonna be patient with you. Listen, if you choose to see the opposite sex as your combatant, you'll create harm. If you choose to see it as they don't act and think exactly like I do, so I'm gonna have to war against them, you will create harm. But if you choose to see the opposite sex as your compliment, you will create harmony. And that's what we want. Like you want this relationship where you're like, I love her for who she is. I love what she brings to my relationship. I love him for who he is. I love what he brings into the relationship. I love our strengths. I love how we work in harmony. I love how we complement one another. It goes on in verse 13. I love this short little verse. It says, bear with one another. Bear with one another is not a reference to the, the, the furry creature in the woods. Um, it is in fact a reference to the fact um, that sometimes people are just annoying and frustrating. You guys notice that? Like, like someone in the relationship is often like annoying and frustrating. And if you're like, no one in my relationship is annoying and frustrating, then it, it's you. Um, and so, no, I mean this, like human beings are annoying and we're frustrating. Sometimes we're selfish and sometimes we're really into ourselves. And oftentimes we're really into our phones. And sometimes you're into your phone and she's into your phone but then she's done or you're done early. And you look, you're like, you are always on your phone, right? Like that's what we do. But what does the scripture say? It's just as we bear with one another, which is like a nice way of saying we put up with one another. Why? Because we're these imperfect, flawed human beings trying to figure out this life together. And if you expect perfect perfection from your boyfriend or perfect perfection from your girlfriend, you will soon end up single because there is no perfect person up there. Here's my question. Why is it you expect the sinner you're dating to be perfect? Like, why is it you expect that out of them? Instead, why don't you just say, I'm gonna have to put up with a certain level of stuff because there's no person out there that I won't have to put up with stuff in. See, sometimes the myth exists for us in a relationship where you're frustrated with him and the way he behaves. And you're like, well, surely if I was with this other guy, he would be perfect and not have any of those issues. And here's what's great. He probably doesn't have that set of issues. But then you get into a relationship with him and he has a different set of issues, right? And that's gonna be true for any human you're with. That's why it says bear with one another. But then in verse 13, it says, and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So bearing with one another is dealing with the fact that sometimes your boyfriend's annoying and sometimes your girlfriend is frustrating and that's just a normal, average, ordinary part of life. But then sometimes things elevate to the level where it's not just a little scratch on the surface, but it's an actual wound into your body. And when it becomes an actual wound into your body, I want you to know that the only tool God has given you to heal the wounds of a past you cannot change is forgiveness. That's the only tool there is in the toolbox. The only tool you have to heal the wounds from your partner is forgiveness. And forgiveness is this beautiful thing we're told we're to forgive as the Lord forgave me. In other words, God forgives me, so I turn around and forgive my wife. God forgives me, and I turn around and forgive the things that she has done to me. Let me remind you what forgiving is and isn't. Number Four things that forgiving isn't. Number one, forgiving is not forgetting. Sometimes people think forgive and forget is sort of like, I'll just kind of ignore what you did and pretend it never happened and we'll move along. I want you to know that's not forgiving. That's just a recipe for you to be resentful about two decades from now. Forgiving is not excusing bad behavior. Forgiving is not saying, ah, it wasn't that big of a deal. Ah, it was just a little thing. It's not minimizing or excusing bad behavior. No, to forgive is actually to remember and it is to blame someone for what they've done. 
It's to say, they wounded me, and I remember it. Forgiving is not pretending it didn't hurt you. So again, sometimes people think forgiveness is being like, yeah, I overreacted. I guess it's not that big of a deal. No, if it wounded you, it wounded you. And finally, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. And so here's what I want you to know, that you can forgive someone and never actually tell them. You can forgive someone and never actually get back into a relationship with them. There are some of you who have an ex or someone in your life who has wounded you deeply, and you can choose to forgive them, letting go of the anger, and not get back into a relationship with them. So I want you to know forgiveness doesn't mean you always get back into the relationship. Here's what forgiveness is. It's the three R's. To forgive is to relinquish the right to get revenge on the person who hurt you. But when I forgive someone, what I am doing is I am laying down the right to vengeance. I am laying down the right to get back at them. Not because what they did didn't wound me, but because they will answer to a higher authority and that authority is the throne of God himself. That is what they will answer to. So when someone wounds me, including the people I love most, forgiving isn't forgetting or pretending it's no big deal. It is me laying down the right to get revenge, saying that is between them and their God. And that releases the anger and the hatred from my heart. Verse 14, we'll come to a close in the next few verses here. It says this. It says, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So again, I talk about this being a playbook, and you just read this. You go, okay, like how are we supposed to behave as a couple? We love one another. How does that work? We let peace rule in our relationship. We actually let the peace of God like overwhelm us. How? We bring thankful. We're like being sharing gratitude with one another. The message of Christ dwells among us, which means like we're reading scripture and listening to sermons together. And then I love what it says here. It says, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I love how it says this here, that we're actually called to teach and admonish one another. We're actually called to be instructing one another in how to love God. And one of the most fascinating things about loving God is that part of what it means to love God is to love one another well. Like in order to love God, I have to love other people well, and that includes the person I'm dating. And it says that we are supposed to teach and admonish one another. In other words, part of what it means to love God is to teach the other person how to love. I need you to know this, that if you are in a relationship, you need to teach your partner how to love you best. You need to instruct them. You need to give them wisdom. You need to give them insight. You need to actually allow them to learn how to love you best. And I know, again, this sounds like this should be so intuitive. Like, of course they'll know how to love me. I love them, they love me, we love Jesus, it should be easy. But, but here's the discovery of kind of all of the wisdom around this, is that we all give and receive love in different ways. And so years ago, a book came out, maybe you're familiar with it, called The Five Love Languages. And it really talked about like in a romantic relationship, even in a friendship relationship, there's kind of five different ways people give and receive love. I'll go through them quickly here. The first is quality time. So quality time means like we hang out for a long time together. And for a lot of people, like you love me if you go hang out with me. You can say all the nice things you want, but if you don't spend hours and hours with me, and if it's not like focused quality time, man, I don't receive love from you. The second is acts of service. So for some people, well, how they feel loved is if you take out the trash or if you cook them dinner or, or if you get their gas uh, or their car filled up with gas, like you're doing things for them. The, the next one is words of affirmation. Like some people's tank is just fueled when you say kind things to them and you write little notes or you send text messages or you say things to them verbally. Number four is physical touch. And physical touch, often people just go straight to sex or straight to lust or straight to those types of things, but it's not that. It can include that, but what it really means is holding a hand putting an arm around them, 
holding hands in the car, just a moment of touch, a hug when you see them. For some people, it's physical touch, and for others, it's gifts. And gifts doesn't have to mean like expensive luxury handbags. It can just mean little mementos. Some of you are like, I would like a handbag, please, right? right? But, but it just means like you're just thinking of them. You got them like flowers. You got them a chocolate. You got them this little something you saw. And here's the point of me sharing that. The point of me sharing that is that you need to understand that there is one of these things that is the top way you receive love. But you want to know the great problem? The person you're dating probably has another one that is the top way they receive love. And so for you, words of affirmation are the way you receive love, and you're always just gushing affirmation on them, but all they really want is quality time. That's where we miss each other. And so what do we have to be as people in a relationship? We have to be who are, who are teaching and admonishing. Here's how you can love me best. I, I want you to know that my, my love language is acts of service. I just want you to know when you do this or you do that for me and you serve me in this way, I just feel so loved. We teach one another how to love. And then we, as the other person, we learn how to love this person. Listen, you must become a student of the one that you love. You must become a student of them. And again, this sounds so unromantic, like romance should just blossom and happen all by its own. But that's not how it actually goes. If you want to love someone well, you must become a student. You must learn. You must understand. You must grow in your knowledge of what makes them feel loved, appreciated, safe, honored, and respected. And then final verse, verse 17, our band will make their way up. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it says, whatever you do, if you are in a relationship if you are dating someone, if you are engaged, if you are married, whatever you do in word or deed, meaning whatever you say and whatever you do with all of your life, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there's this gratitude we live with. And yet I also want to point out this, that we're not just doing it in the name of Jesus. I love that Paul slips in this word. We're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've said before, I'll say again, this word Lord in the Greek language in the New Testament is the word kurios. Kurios doesn't mean God, it means king, it means master, it means the one who's in charge. So when Jesus is called the Lord Jesus, it means he's the one who's in charge of our life. He calls the shots, he gets to be in charge. He's the one who's in control, not us. And here's why this is such a significant place for us to stop tonight. It's a significant place for us to stop tonight because you need to understand that one of the most toxic and destructive things that exists inside any relationship is the desire to control, manipulate, or dominate the other person. Like you need to know that the toxic sludge at the bottom of so many relationships is the fact that there is a girl or a guy who is trying to control or manipulate or shape the other person into their image. And here's what it says, that whatever you do or in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. Men, women, that means we're not trying to control one another. We're not trying to manipulate one another. We're not trying to get the upper hand on one another. We're not trying to make sure the other person acts and behaves just how we want them to. Hear me on this. If either one of you demand control, the relationship is doomed to failure. Control dooms and destroys relationships. If you try to control him, ladies, gentlemen, if you try to control her, if you try to be the king who just makes all the decisions and everything always goes your way, your relationship is doomed to failure. But I want you to know this. If you both submit to Jesus's control, the relationship is destined and designed for fruitfulness. I want you to know this. I want you to know if you become the type of person who says, I don't need to be in control. I don't need to control this person. I'm submitting to Jesus's control. I'm surrendering to his control. I'm submitting my life to him. Jesus is king. Listen, when two people both confess that Jesus is king, he's in charge. They're living their life with him in control. You don't need to have one of you be in control in the relationship because Jesus already is. That's the invitation for you.
If you are in a relationship, it is to surrender this desire, this need you have for control to the Lord Jesus, to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. You are in charge and you are in control. And hear me, single men and women, if you want to be in a healthy, thriving Christian relationship right now, surrender this desire you have to control the entire world to Jesus. Let him do it. Let him be God. He is way better at being God than you will ever be. And when you surrender your life to Jesus and you surrender control to Jesus, you can walk freely through this world and love people without feeling the need to control, manipulate, or dominate them. Let Jesus be Lord. Let Jesus be King. Allow him to sit on the throne of heaven and on the throne of your life and the throne of your relationship. And you will see the fruitfulness that God has promised to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Think deeply about what it means to date one another, to love one another to pursue one another and to have a Christ-centered relationship. Pray for the men and women in this room and ask that you would bless their relationships, bless their life, bless their romance, bless the boyfriends and girlfriends, fiancés, husbands and wives in this room. God, may we live like Jesus, may we love like him, and may we surrender our lives to his lordship. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God said.